1: Welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co host the channel with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Professor Cass Sunstein. His new book is titled Choosing Not to Choose Understanding the Value of Choice. It's just been published by Oxford University Press. Sunstein is the Robert Walmsley University professor at Harvard University. The political tradition of liberalism tends to associate political liberty with the individual's freedom of choice. The thought is that individual freedom is intrinsically tied to the ability to select one's own path in life without the intrusion or supervision of others. John Stuart Mill who held a version of this view, argued that it is in choosing for ourselves that we develop not only self-knowledge, but autonomy and even personality. Yet we now know that the image of the individual chooser that Mill's view seems to presuppose is not quite accurate. It's not only the case that environmental factors of various kinds exert a great but often invisible influence over our choices, we must also contend with the limits of our cognitive resources in choice-making. Sometimes, having to choose can be a burden, a hazard, and even an obstacle to liberty. In his book, Choosing Not to Choose, Cass Sunstein examines the varied phenomena of choice-making. Bringing a range of findings from behavioral sciences, Sunstein makes the case that sometimes avoiding or delegating choice is itself an exercise of individual freedom. Choosing Not to Choose is a fascinating book. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Cass Sunstein. Greetings, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm terrific. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us for New Books in Philosophy. Mm. Pleasure to be here. And thank you, listeners, for checking out the podcast. My guest today is Cass Sunstein, and his latest, latest book is titled Choosing Not to Choose, Understanding the Value of Choice. Now, as I'm sure many listeners know, like so much of Cass's work, this book demonstrates a really amazing command of a broad array of empirical and conceptual issues, Uh, and um, a real amazing command of a bunch of issues that lie at the intersection of a number of different um, fields of research, including philosophy, law, politics, economics, and technology, and that's just naming a few. Um, Now, although the book uh, Choosing Not to Choose builds on um, some previous work, including um, previous work in a book that Cass published a few years ago, Uh, co-authored with Richard Thaler called Nudge, Um, Choosing Not to Choose can be read as a standalone exploration of both the phenomenon, or I should say maybe the phenomena of choice, uh, and um, its importance, or the importance of choice. Um, And there's a lot to talk about. Uh, So um, why don't we begin, though, where we usually begin. um, So Cass, let's start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a professor at Harvard,
0: um, principally based in law school, but I teach in lots of different parts. I was at the University of Chicago for a number of years, over 20. Uh, one of my colleagues there was a young professor named Barack Obama, and he got himself <laughs> elected president and brought me into the White House. So I worked there for four years from 2009 to the end of 2012. Uh, 2013 to 2014, I was involved in a review group he created to help get the surveillance security balance under better control. And uh, since then, I've been full time uh, at my computer and writing.
1: Well, that's excellent. And um, I should say also, as I'm sure, again, many listeners, you are a prolific writer. So you've been spending a lot of time at your desk writing.
0: Well, I have a very good keyboard on my, on my new computer, so we'll see. He- <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, great. So um, just picking up on that then, um, I usually like to begin these um, interviews with, uh, you know, I'm usually interviewing philosophers who are working as, in philosophy departments. Um, and so I usually like to ask them about their conception of philosophy. Um, so I wanted to ask you sort of a variation on that kind of question. Um, so your work, as, it's always fascinated me because it, it really strikes, it seems to be always that kind of healthy balance between um, what we might call the empirical and the conceptual, that is that you're somebody who, whose theorizing is always informed by interesting and very current, I should say, sort of empirical results. Um, so you seem to seek, that is, a kind of empirically informed philosophy or theorizing that's not just a catalog of the empirical results, but brings the empirical results to bear on theoretical issues. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you view your philosophical work or your theoretical work, if you don't like to think of it as merely philosophy?
0: Well, some of it certainly is philosophical. Uh, one of my uh, great heroes is John Stuart Mill. Oh, good, me too. <laughs> and, uh, one of the you know many uh, great, with a capital G, things about Mill uh, was that he was thinking frequently of the very deepest issues involving liberty and equality and self-government and what it makes for a life to be good. Uh, He was doing this in a way that was, uh, I would say, empirical in the sense that he was closely engaged with how the world really works and he didn't get himself trapped in his own abstractions. He was always brought to bear the theoretical ideas about uh, freedom or utility or about subjection with actual practices. Uh, Now, Mill didn't live in a time when there were randomized controlled trials. He was uh, certainly before the era of uh, behavioral uh, science. Um, We've learned a lot since his time. Uh, But to think about the same issues that he focused on and that many of the great philosophers, of course, in the Western tradition have focused on in a way that is uh, trying to see whether... Uh, claims about liberty and equality and self-government or dignity uh, fits with something we actually know or can test. That seems to me extremely productive. So many of our great thinkers actually had implicit uh, uh, empirical claims, and uh, if they did to figure out if they're true is, is maybe a path forward.
1: Right. And so a lot of your work then um, sort of has this not this interdisciplinarity in it. That's not shallow. It's not as if you're a law professor who's dabbling in philosophy or a philosopher who's dabbling in um, psychology. Um, Can you tell just a little bit about how you got so deeply into um, so many different disciplines?
0: Uh, Yes, I'm, I'm happy to. So I was at the University of Chicago as a kind of kid law professor. And I saw very quickly that some of the most interesting claims that I was surrounded by were actually philosophical claims. Uh, So there was an idea, I remember a conversation with a terrific economist about uh, what liberty was, and he thought it was preference satisfaction, and that was Mm -hmm. uh, axiomatic to him. And it seemed to me that that wasn't clearly true, that you could have a conception of liberty that talked about your second order preferences, course, I learned from Harry Frankfurt or something about that. And uh, there were claims about um, uh, uh, desire and uh, how one should think about obtaining them. And uh, Amartya Sen's work on rational fools seemed to be extremely powerful uh, uh, and had some uh, critical things to say. So in thinking about the economic analysis of law and policy, I thought you were quickly submerged in uh, some Some deep questions, and so I thought it was important to try to understand them and to get some help from philosophers. Alan Gibbard was someone I learned a great deal from uh, uh, from reading and there were, you know Rawls was someone who I got to know and uh, learned an enormous amount from and the The philosophical ideas that quickly you're drawn into if you're thinking about even seemingly mundane questions such as what's addictional about and what should government do with it, or why should people have to obey contracts, or how do you you think really about discrimination in the context of disability? These quickly become philosophical questions. Then from another direction, the economic analysis of policies has a rational actor model behind it. And that's been the kind of source of multiple Nobel Prizes and a lot of uh, thinking and, you know, from high schools to very elite graduate schools. And while there's a lot of power in the rational actor model, I noticed early on that some of the people who wield it, with the greatest confidences also lament their own uh, foolish investments make on the tennis court. Uh, shots that seem kind of crazy. of go for a big topspin backhand when their backhand isn't so good, and some of them are divorced. And, <laughs> and, and so there, there, there are things you can say that maybe will rescue the rationality of those investments and those failed marriages and those topspin backhands. But <laughs> but there, there seems to be an issue there, and so the the work, the behavioral work by Kahneman and Tversky and Thaler. Um, seem to me extremely uh, illuminating, not showing that people are irrational or random, but that uh, people are fallible. And so if you put together questions about what ought to be done, either in a life or in a policy, with questions about how ought we to think about freedom and what are the limits of preference satisfaction, and, and connect that with some of the behavioral findings, then you might get a pretty interesting soup.
1: Well, yes. Um, So let's um, turn to the book proper, if that's okay. Um, So um, Choosing Not to Choose um, develops uh, and focuses on some some themes that um, uh, were sort of introduced and were lingering um, around uh, not only the book nudge, but some of the subsequent stuff you've written on nudges. Um, and, um, accordingly, um, you and you and Thaler have introduced a lot of vocabulary to help us, um, think about, um, uh, some of these, um, choice theoretic, um, issues. Um, so, um, in the book, Choosing Not to Choose, you employ some of the language that is introduced elsewhere. So the language of choice architecture, default rules, um, I don't know if the word nudge is, is used in this book, but certainly it's uh, a conceptual uh, tool that's uh, playing in the background. Um, at one point in uh, Choosing Not to Choose, you talk about choice requiring paternalism. Um, can you give us a big picture sort of of the kind of framework within which the new book Choosing Not to Choose uh, sort of figures? Yes.
0: So there's an idea. We can associate it with Mill, who I think is its greatest exponent, that active choosing is the centerpiece of human life, uh, that choosers make um, good decisions for themselves by and large because they know more than outsiders will. That's the epistemic heart of his On Liberty book. And there's also an idea there that choice-making is like a muscle that gets strengthened through its exercise. And so there's an epistemic claim about uh, error and accuracy, which might argue for active choosing, and there's also a claim about self-development, which might argue for active choosing. So those are two ideas. Then there's a fact, which is that uh, if we had to make choices with respect to everything that affects us, uh, we'd quickly be drowned in our initial uh, uh, dilemmas because life is pervaded by choice architecture, as you say, or default rules that mean that we don't have to make a choice, for example, about the ingredients of the meal we just had, unless we're a chef or uh, cook that one at home, or the... uh, the the components of our car or the architecture of our cell phone or um, computer or the uh, default settings on both of these. So uh, these are just facts about the world that I think raise a question about what Mill is thinking about. The more fundamental point is that uh, sometimes people choose not to choose. That's a way we exercise our choice-making muscle, and that's a choice which might reflect our own epistemic advantages about when, when it makes best sense for us to choose and not to choose. So if you think of a, a human day, including, you know, a day of the President of the United States or the day of someone who is involved in manual labor, there are numerous choices not to choose in that day. Some of them occur so quickly and so automatically that they don't even register as choices not to choose, but still that's, that's what they are. So, to put a spotlight on this way that people exercise their autonomy, uh, develop a muscle, and promote their welfare, seems to me that that's, that's quite a, a gap in our philosophical thinking, even though there's some very good um, work in. Uh, psychology and philosophy on on the limits of choice. This particular choice, the choice not to choose, uh, seemed to me something that needed you know a, a big spotlight on it. And I should say that one reason I got excited about the topic was not only its kind of pervasiveness in a life, uh, but also that uh, the book Nudge to which you referred uh, it did have a a kind of gap, which is. it it didn't confront the argument that says active choosing uh, has real value in a way that transcends the opportunity to choose. That is, the exercise of choice-making muscles is a lot better on one view than the mere opportunity to choose. And there's work that is either directly philosophical or philosophically inspired in the last couple of years that gets at this distinction between the opportunity to choose, which Nudge celebrates and uh, claims is very important, and the exercise of the choice, which some of the uh, critical work suggests really deserves priority. And uh, that, that claim that people should be exercising their choice-making muscle very much got under my skin. I think is very powerful. And an interesting kind of two-way response, which the book tries to venture, is uh, if you don't let the people choose not to choose, then you are acting paternalistically. You're prohibiting them from doing what they want to do, which is not to choose.
1: Right, and in not choosing, they might, um, and I, I, I take it frequently would be, deciding to spend their mental energy and bandwidth cognitive bandwidth on some other kind of thing that might involve choosing. Yes. (laughs) This seems to me
0: a deep kind of practical and philosophical point you just made, which is that uh, our cognitive resources are limited. And one thing we're doing, sometimes very automatically and sometimes very reflectively, is thinking to what do we want to devote those limited resources? And that involves uh, both choosing not to choose kind of at the same time, I'm going to choose to, you know, engage in this activity, which means I'm not going to choose. I might delegate to others, uh, you know, uh, decisional power over over something else. And uh, that is an exercise of autonomy. Sometimes if you choose not to choose with respect to something really important, um uh, there's there's a problem you might not be exercising a really important part of the muscle and you might be relinquishing to someone else a very central component of your life so that, right. that's pretty interesting
1: so right so let's pick up on that so part of the story then uh, in in choosing not to choose is that um, in some kinds of contexts maybe a broad variety of contexts um, the decision to choose not to choose is itself an expression of autonomy or freedom or could be. Um, but in these cases where we choose not to choose, um, I take it that some of them uh, are cases where somebody or something has to decide what happens to us if we don't actively choose. Right. And that's where the default uh, rule um, uh, analysis comes in. And that's also where you know, choice architects come into the story. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yes. So a choice architect might think um, for this sort of thing, people are going to make an active choice. They just have to. And uh, you might think that in order for people to uh, avoid the coercive effect of the law, they have to say what their health insurance plan is going to be to make an active choice. Or you're not going to get a driver's license unless you say whether you want to be an organ donor. So there the choice architect is saying active choosing, that's what we're going to do. Another possibility would be to say we're going to have a default where you're not participating in something, but you can opt in. and Maybe we'll make it easy for you. So in 49 of the 50 states, that's what voting now looks like, where if you're 21 years old or 31 or 41 or 51, you're you're not a voter. You have to opt in. You have to register. And that's true for for many things. You have to register. You have to opt in. Uh, A third option is to say, look, you have this by default, and if you don't want it, you can opt out. So uh, Oregon has become the first state of the union whereby adults are voters by default. If they don't want to be, they can opt out of registration, but they are not by default. And increasingly in the United States, employees... (sighs) are defaulted into uh, pension plans on top of their Social Security plans, 401K plans, uh, from which they can opt out. And the evidence is that defaulting them into 401K plans really is knocking up savings very significantly. Under the Affordable Care Act, not only is there a mandate that people uh, get health insurance, there's also uh, a practice coming in under the Act that says that employers have to default people into a health insurance plan allowing them to opt out if, for example, their spouse has it. And if you look at your relationship with your employer, your university, there are probably multiple default settings which you can opt out of, or there are some things into which you can opt by active choosing. And there are other things where your employer or your uh, whatever association or Uh, business you're connected.
1: Or even your cell phone. (laughs) Or even definitely your cell phone.
0: Things that are default and things you have to choose when you first turn it on. And uh, this choice among opt-in, opt-out, and active choice seems to me among the most profound uh, choices that a choice architect has. And notice whether the choice architect is a cell phone company or a state university or a labor union or a religious organization or federal government, it can't avoid doing one of the three. That's just not conceptually possible. It has to do one of the three.
1: That's right. And so um, I'm sure you've, I mean, I, I, I know you've heard these kinds of objections that seem a little bit conceptually sort of off the target where people say, um, well, this whole picture is taking choice away from people because it's talking about other people making choices for them. And it, that, that last bit that you mentioned seems to me to be the really crucial point, <laughs> that there's no way for there to be a an environment with cognitive creatures unless there are defaults. What happens if the person does nothing? Um, and those defaults can be willy-nilly or they can be thought about um, with um, the the individual's well-being in mind, or they can be thought about with all kinds of other goals in mind, too. Is that right?
0: Absolutely. So
1: a world without
0: defaults is very hard to imagine. Uh, The closest thing you can think of, I think, to, to the world without defaults is a world with active choosing, where you're told you can't use your computer until you make, let's say, 95 decisions. Now, that might not enhance your experience of your computer, And if you've ever uh, liked it, when a website says, offers the blessed words, please don't ask me again, then you probably are on to the, not only the convenience, but the autonomy increasing uh, characteristic of default rules.
1: Right. And that's the, I guess that is the the really crucial part is that sometimes in these cases where the sort of the, the choice architecture is set up so that there's, let's just call them, sensible defaults in place, that that's not coercive. That's actually, on your view, enhancing people's freedom. Yes, it enhances people's freedom in
0: the sense that it uh, liberates them to devote time to those things that, um, that they want to devote their time to. And that's uh, a central, and I think underappreciated by the liberal political tradition, a central part of, of, of our autonomy, our ability to allocate time to those things that we think are worthy of our time. Now, it's also the case that default rules uh, maintain freedom of choice, and I think that's a very important virtue. So if the default rule is, you know, your relationship with your employer has 12 features and there are eight of them that you can change, then that's probably pretty good, rather than that there's zero that you can change. Uh, An alternative, of course, is to say, Instead of a default, you're just going to have to choose. And that's sometimes a good idea if there's um, a a value in learning or if there's a lot of diversity in the relevant population so that a default rule might end up being harmful to people or if there's uh, ignorance on the part of the choice architect so the choice architect doesn't really know what would fit people. And the reason those points are important is even though a default rule does maintain freedom of choice, which makes it much better than uh, mandates, Uh, it it does have the feature, a default rule of tending to stick, as you said before, which means that a choice architect who says, okay, with respect to everything under the sun, we're just going to default people into things and let them opt out if they don't like those things, that might not be so good. If it means that inertia or procrastination is going to end, lead people to end up in situations that don't fit uh, their their interests or their values.
1: Like so, can, can I can we back up just just a little bit because maybe it might be helpful um, uh, to talk a little bit about some of the more um, intriguing, I'll call them sort of behavioral results uh, about cafeteria lines and uh, other kinds of um, cases where it looks as if um, shaping the what we'll call choice environment um, in one way rather than the other seems to have some significant sort of causal effects on what people choose in that environment. Can we talk a little bit about some of those cases? Sure, I'll
0: give you you a few examples. So uh, if candy bars are wrapped in green wrappers, uh, people who care about the environment and health are more likely to choose them, (laughs) even if they consist solely of high-calorie, sugar-filled milk chocolate. Uh, So that's part of the environment, yes, the color of the wrapper. Uh, If people sign forms at the beginning, they are on average more likely to be honest than if they sign forms at the end. Um, apparently because signing at the beginning, you think, gosh, I'm kind of on the line now, and I better make sure it's truthful, whereas if you sign at the end, there's, for some people, a kind of, yeah, whatever feeling. And uh, there has to be a location where you sign, just as rappers have to have a color, so this isn't, right. this isn't avoidable. In the cafeteria example, you give um, Taylor and I and nudge, kind of just hypothesized a uh, cafeteria director who's trying to figure out how to order foods and notices that the ordering has an effect on people's ultimate choices. Uh, We were pretty sure that was true, but we didn't have any data. Uh, Now there's a ton of data, which shows (laughs) that one good way to get healthier eating for kids is not to mandate anything, but to make sure the cafeteria is designed so the healthy foods are visible and accessible. And there's a great deal of empirical work showing that for uh, children, high schoolers, adults, uh, the design of a cafeteria or a grocery store is extremely effective in altering people's choices. Now, just like any default rule, if you adore, let's say, peanut butter uh, cookies uh, and if you're focused on them, you'll find your way to them. Uh, but if the peanut butter cookies you quite like, they're not so visible and the strawberries are right there, let's say. Um, and the, the, let's say, high-calorie soft drink isn't so visible, but uh, water and healthier drinks are visible, has a big impact. Google in New York recently, which knows all about choice architecture, they redesigned their cafeteria, uh, and some people have called it the Nudge Cafeteria, and it had a big effect on consumption. So this, this seems to be something Mill didn't really see, right, which right. is the, uh, choice affecting consequence of of design and uh, if people don't have strong antecedent preferences maybe they don't have preferences at all before the design then to try to figure out you know how to apply a principle that says let people do what they want so long as they're, there's in harm to others there are lots of designs of let's say websites and forms and cafeterias and candy bars that are consistent with that principle and the question is how you choose among them. If that's the question, then the principle doesn't really tell you.
1: Right. Can can I ask, again, I don't don't know whether there's, there's, I'm assuming that there's also data on the following kind of question about the cafeteria line, for example. Um, Have they done interviews with choosers at what you were calling nudge cafeterias? is the chart is the choice architecture that's designed to you know get them to the salad and away from the cake? Um, is that visible? Is that is that something they're cognizant of? Do they do they see their choice? Let's so let's say at, at a cafeteria, the guy just got a salad who usually gets cake. Um, have there been interviews with people and say like what do you think about the salad you just chose? Do they they say well, you know the cake was just it was it was a little bit less salient in my environment or do they? See the choice to have the cake instead to have the salad instead of the cake as just another choice that they made.
0: It's a great question. Uh, We don't have a lot of data so far as I'm aware on on that. Um, In the Google context, the employees were concerned that they were eating too much candy at the prior cafeteria, and they appreciated the redesign of the cafeteria, which didn't forbid them from getting what they want which did um, nudge them in the direction of healthier eating. So they understood that and they they appreciated that. Uh, What I don't know is in the school cafeterias, which are where we have the most data, whether the kids there are thinking I'm getting the healthier food because of the cafeteria's design or instead whether they're thinking, oh, there's the carrots. They look pretty good before, before they get to the brownies.
1: Right, so I guess I'm just wondering like, to what extent the the choice environment and the way that it's been curated, let's say, is something that's visible. Uh, in these cases where on a Monday you had the, the cafeteria line set up in one way where the candy bars were first, and then maybe a couple of days later the carrots are, are at the front of the line and the candy bars are far far in. I wonder if that's something that's um, uh, not like the Google employees who sort of – as you just described, this sort of we're, we're hoping for a better choice environment. I just wonder to what extent these manipulations, and I mean that in a neutral sense, right. uh, uh, of, of the choice environment are things that um, choosers who are affected in the intended ways are aware of.
0: I hope so, though you're quite right that the answer can't always be yes because right. uh, a lot of life is on automatic pilot. And if a change isn't is invisible, if, if it just looks like this, you might not think, oh, they did it this way for this reason. Well, I think the first obligation for those who uh, uh, seek not to be manipulative as uh, choice architecture should seek not to be manipulative is transparency and, and uh, openness. So if there is a default rule for employers, let's say, that are coming from the government, government should be very clear that we're encouraging or requiring default rules of a certain kind. And for employees, they should be told, here's the default, and um, it should be accessible, that this is the reason for the default, and they should have the option, and this should be very transparent to opt out. I think this is generally the case with respect to automatic enrollment in uh, savings plans where employees know what the practice is, they have a sense of what the reason for the practice is, and they can opt out of the practice if they don't like the practice. So that is a necessary condition for the avoidance of manipulation. You could imagine some things like subliminal advertising, which are manipulative, uh, even if they are transparent. And to figure out why that is is kind of is a very important question. Something like it's working on people behind their backs. They're not aware of the mechanism. And so clarity on the mechanism is probably uh, something that uh, people have a right to.
1: Good. So one of the things that you discuss in the book um, is that sometimes, though, when defaults and the sort of features of the choice architecture are made transparent, you can sort of get self-defeating results in the sense of um, uh, what you call uh, reactants. Uh, People sort of don't like the thought that somebody has set up um, uh, their environment in a way to elicit a certain kind of choice or a certain way of choosing. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what makes the difference between both good and bad default rules, but also, as we were talking about a moment ago, sort of the default rules that stick and the ones that sort of prompt a kind of um, uh, a negative reaction.
0: Yes, so the, the best,
1: I think, um,
0: simple demonstration of the ineffectiveness of default rules comes from the OECD, which a few years ago set all the thermometers down during winter by one degree Celsius. That was a new default designed to protect the environment and save money. It was very effective. Uh, As part of the same experiment, they set the thermometers down by 2 degrees Celsius, and that was much less effective. So the reaction people had at 2 degrees Celsius down was, uh, no, we don't want to be cold. And a lesson, I think, that this example offers is that default rules will not stick if it makes people cold. (laughs) And you can think of that as you know, makes them poorer in a way that bothers them, it makes them uh, uh, put upon in some way that involves their time, then they are going to opt out. Uh, So people's rejection of default rules will be based first and foremost on the, uh, the judgment that this is not in my interest. So people can be defaulted and and are basically happy into pension plans with a three percent or four percent contribution rate. If you knock that up to fifteen percent or twenty percent, people are going to default, are going to opt out, and they're going to be pretty mad. They don't want fifteen percent of their take-home pay going to savings. Most people. Um, There's a separate phenomenon which you put your finger on, which is reactance, which is independent of not liking the. Uh, the project the Choice Architect has. Reactance is saying, I don't like the fact that the Choice Architect has a project at all, right. even, if, even if it's one that's in my interest. Now, Reactance has been found most in contexts where people are actually coerced. So if people are told, you can't uh, have lunch between uh, noon and 1245, you have to be working then, Predictably, people are going to be mad, and they may rebel against and break the rule. Um, if you create a default rule, the, the uh, motivation for reactants is greatly weakened because can't, people can opt out. Uh, so I wouldn't uh, go to town with the concept of reactants as applied to default rules. But there is some evidence that some default rules do bother people because they seem like an imposition uh, from some high handed type. And I have some evidence of my own very recent uh, post dates, the book that I didn't expect, which is that if people are asked, do you want to go into green energy or not? When green energy is a little more expensive, they're more likely to go into green energy than they are, um, when they're defaulted into green energy. Hmm. And that's very surprising. It should wow. the default the yeah. rule overpowers, uh, active choosing with respect to participation. That's the general principle. But we find, my co-author and I find, for green energy, at least in the survey set, uh, people do show reactance against more expensive green energy. Apparently they feel guilty not going green, uh, but their guilt is overcome if they think some choice architect has assumed, without their explicit consent, that they want to pay more for energy.
1: That's well, that's fascinating. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what to what conclusion to draw from that. I mean, beyond the principle you just articulated. Um, So let me sort of shift gears just slightly. And and, um, because part of uh, the story in choosing not to choose is also not is not only that there could be cases where choice architecture and, and cleverly or properly set default rules can enhance freedom. But, uh, um, and I want to just emphasize this, it came up a little bit earlier, that um, there are these cases where um, uh, not allowing people to choose not to choose or not allowing people to defer to the default set by a choice architect can actually rob them of their freedom. Can we talk a little bit about that?
0: Yes. So if people say, look, I don't want to worry about uh, some medical decision," I trust you, doctor. Uh, You tell me what to do. I got a problem. You know what's best. I want to deal with my family and not with the choice among six options I don't understand. And then if the ethical position of the medical profession is, sorry, patient, I'm going to spell out the six things in enormous detail, and I'm not going to give you any guidance. I'm just going to give you facts, and it's over to you. Uh, there's a good argument that that's not respectful of the patient's autonomy. Uh, Just as if you're in a taxi cab and the cab driver says, which way would you like to go? And you say, as many of us do, you choose. If the taxi driver says, sorry, I really need you to tell me, that's an intrusion on on autonomy. Uh, I think this does cut hard against one view, which is that in interactions among uh, people and with institutions and uh, with the public sector even, uh, the the way to respect autonomy is always to make sure people make a choice. That may not be true. That might be an intrusion on their autonomy. And if you think of the lives of people who are doing really well, either in terms of subjective well-being or in terms of freedom or in terms of happiness, uh, one reason is that they don't have to think all the time about what they're going to do with respect to X or Y or Z. Um,
1: so let me, let me change gears one more time. I want to make sure that we, we, we have time to talk about um, your discussion of personalized shopping, um, which was fascinating. Um, uh, and this seems to be um, uh, increasingly uh, within the realm of possibility and, in fact, increasingly within the realm of actuality, where um, it would not be difficult or is not difficult uh, for firms uh, offering goods of various sorts um, to be able to predict given what we've bought and when we've bought it, when we're going to buy those things again and what other things we also might want to buy.
0: Absolutely. So (laughs) if you are a book purchaser on a website and made a lot of choices, uh, there's a good chance that that uh, site will have an algorithm which will know what you uh, will like next. And it could make it as a recommendation, or it could say, uh, we're going to send it to you, and in the very unlikely event that we've made a mistake, you can send it back. So you could imagine recommendations, we're seeing that. You could imagine default purchases, or you could imagine people being asked, you want to enroll in a program of default purchases. You could see this easily in the electoral context. Uh, where, you know, we know you like these candidates, so we're probably going to like this one. Uh, there are algorithms that are doing that. There's recent work suggesting that algorithms, by the way, do better even than spouses and close friends at knowing what kind of jokes you're going to find funny. If they, an algorithm knows, if you're, the computer knows what kind of jokes you found funny in the past, even just a few, it's going to be pretty good at knowing which other ones you're going to find funny. Better than people who know you really well,
1: and I and there was a, also a mention about sort of gift giving and gift buying um, for holidays or, or otherwise. <laughs> We're apparently not very good at uh, at buying gifts for our intimates, or at least not as good as certain kinds of algorithms. Is that true? Uh,
0: well, we know that uh, friends and spouses and family members do not very well at picking gifts that we'll actually like. Uh, so there's what economists call a deadweight loss, where people get things that are worth a lot less to them than their purchase price. Um, uh, I think there's reason to believe that an algorithm would do better than uh, than uh, at least some friends and family members and spouses. But that uh, we don't have a randomized trial on that. What we do know is that predictive shopping, which you can think of as personalized defaults, so I think that's the big game here. What we've been talking about so far is uh, mass defaults, but you can imagine more personalized defaults. Uh, for, we're observing some of this in the pension setting, where you know that a 40-year-old should have a different plan than a 20-year-old, and that should be different from a 60-year-old. And employers are, are on to that. You can make it more personalized still, where your health care plan, your if, if there's going to be a default as the Affordable Care Act anticipates, your um, your savings plan, your privacy protection, even your relationship with your university, that all these would have default provisions that are personalized to you. And in a way, that might mean, seem scary and kind of uh, brave new world-ish, but it could be a great convenience and ensure a lot more accuracy than you get through uh, mass defaults.
1: Right. Um So I want to also make sure that um, we can pick up on um, what what you were saying a moment ago about the electoral context, because um, you do seem concerned with um, the application of some of the default and predictive stuff to um, sort of democratic activity, particularly with voting, in that you seem to think, well, there's still a kind of moral argument about the sort of internal ethics of democratic citizenship. That would count against or would weigh decisively against um, default voting or, um, you know, sort of the, the equivalent of personalized shopping uh, in the voting booth. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that kind of moral argument about the importance of voting? Sure. So for voting, you might think that each person
0: in a free society uh, is supposed to figure out who that person favors and the fact that you, maybe, favorite candidates of a certain type over the past 5 or 10 or 15 years should not be usable even by you as a basis for thinking, I'm not going to deal with politics this year. I'm just going to allow the algorithm to track my previous preferences. And the idea would be that while we're not, you know, insisting that people be political participants all the time. There's something in the internal morality of a self-governing nation which says that people have to be active choosers on election day rather than just parasites even on their own previous views. And that's because circumstances may change, values may change, people should be open to rethinking uh, their political convictions shouldn't be on automatic pilot with respect to, you know, this foundation stone of of uh, of, of of government.
1: So would you say then so I, I had a family member some years back who um, revealed to me that um, every presidential election he gets a flyer or a pamphlet from a political organization that he belongs to uh, that just endorses a slate of. endorses a candidate and he says, and that's, I just go to the booths and just, I, I don't even look at it before election day. I just go to the booths and just vote for the people that that pamphlet tells me I should vote for. Um, is, I mean, that doesn't seem to be much different from the, I mean, it's just a different kind of mechanism. Um, is that person doing something blameworthy on your view? I don't think so. I think, you know, reasons that fit with what we've said before
0: about, uh, scarcity that if you think that there's some authority that this year probably knows what you like, uh, it's okay to defer to that. So I'd take a kind of thinner, weak version of what I said, which is rather than the thicker, which would not at all condemn what you describe, but which would condemn a system whereby, let's say, Kansas said, OK, this year, we're going to just plug in an algorithm based on how you voted in the past. And there's complete privacy protection. And so you don't even have to show up. You just vote for the you go with what we think you are, are going to like, given who we've liked in the past. And the reason what you described seems to me uh, at least tentatively to be better is that what you described is a person thinking here's someone who for this particular election has a better sense of the candidates. And uh, who's best based on what I myself think than I, I, I do or could unless I spend a lot of time on it. And the, the latter, that is the delegation to a trusted authority, uh, preserves um, more capacity for change over time than it would be if there's an algorithm that said X tends to vote Democrats, so it's going to be all Democrats in perpetuity.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um Picking up on the the democratic politics theme, which um, uh, democracy is always um, uh, something very central to what you're doing, Um, so is there a worry about um, uh, even properly chosen uh, and responsible uh, defaults um, uh, sort of limiting our, or having sort of the, the byproduct perhaps of limiting our exposure To um, a certain range of, I don't want to say unwanted in any strong sense, but at least um, unexpected and um, unexpected experiences that we wouldn't have chosen to undergo um, uh, antecedently, but that might have good democratic value. Um,
0: Absolutely. So uh, maybe we can take two polls to try to link the practical everyday life with some pretty foundational. Theoretical issues. One poll is uh, a city, as described by Jane Jacobs in her fantastic book on the death and life of the American cities, where Jacobs' conception of a city is it's like a uh, a, uh, architecture serendipity, where you go from one place to another and who knows what you're going to see. It might be a museum. It might be poverty. It might be something really beautiful. It might be something... Uh, pretty horrible. It might be a church. It might be a tenement. And it might be magnificent. It might be a movie theater. And, you know, your life is just a cornucopia of surprise in a great city. That's her conception of it. And at an opposite pole, we could think of Pandora, the website and app, which I, I really enjoy, where if you like Taylor Swift, as I do, or uh, Amy Mann, as I do, you can have Taylor Swift or Amy Mann Radio or Bob Dylan Radio. Those are three pretty good choices, I think. Uh, <laughs> but they, uh, but they, as wonderful as all three are, they narrow your horizons in the sense that you don't hear uh, Kanye West or um, uh, Katy Perry or um, uh, Steve Earle because you have those three others. And uh, there's something great about Pandorization, let's call it, where you create an architecture of control, where you hear exactly what you like and things that are like what you like, according to, in this case, the algorithm. Uh, But you don't hear things that are very different that you might end up liking. So there's a kind of, in this case, through the architecture of control, a narrowing of one's own horizons. You become a kind of echo chamber of your own tastes. And that's in an individual life uh, very far from ideal. And in a self-governing society, it has all sorts of problems, which is citizens aren't going to find out about uh, one another. They're not going to be able to broaden their horizons. They might not be able to engage, to have mutual understanding. So people are Taylor Swift all the time. And she does have a great degree of diversity, admittedly. But we can think of that as a kind of person, really, who who wouldn't be able to understand people who are, let's say, uh, Kanye West all the time. Even though my understanding is that Taylor and Kanye West are now getting along pretty well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and is that a um, is is that a, a an empirical s- sort of finding that? Um, and it might not only be with musical taste, although I could see that it's it 's probably not hard to to, to see that it 's true with musical taste that um, sort of regular exposure to the same genre of art for example, or the same cuisine and food not only makes one um, uh, you know more beholden to that that genre or that cuisine but also um, makes one less able to appreciate um some diverse uh, or some uh, far different uh, um, kind of experience? That's a
0: great, so, that's a great question, and I, I don't know what data there is on it or if there is any. Um, I hope there is, and uh, thank you for that because I'm going to look. I do, uh, <laughs> well, let me know. <laughs> I, I do know in the political context there's something analogous where like-minded people talking only to one another tend to end up in a more extreme position in line with their pre-deliberation tendencies. So if you've got a group of people who think climate change is not a problem, uh, they're going to end up as a regularity thinking after they talk to each other, climate change really, really isn't a problem. It's a hoax. And right. something parallel happens with people who are really scared of climate change after they talk to one another, they're terrified. And with respect to musical tastes, you could imagine the same thing. Though the question is whether, in some domains, some sort of cultural experiences uh, lose their charm if if they're all you hear for a while, and then then the mechanism of self-insulation would, in a way, be self-correcting. But I I just don't know the data on that.
1: Interesting. Um, So, last question. Then Um, you've been very very generous with your time, or at least maybe maybe it's not the last question. The last question, following up on this. So, what do you think the lesson is then um, uh, for democratic societies, given that there is an inevitability to the phenomena of choice architecture, default rules, opt in, opt out kinds of questions, but also that, uh, and that these sorts of phenomena can be um, freedom enhancing, um, uh, but they also have some danger, not only from being manipulated in the pejorative sense of that term, but also uh, in that they can have these sort of horizon-limiting effects.
0: Um, There are some areas, and self-governance is one, where probably an architecture of control is a bit more popular than it ought to be, and an architecture of serendipity a bit less So with respect to culture, media, things that involve how we're going to govern ourselves, thinking about education, there may be a bit of a trend line toward uh, control, which disregards the value of serendipity. I think that is is a a lesson for democracy. That has um, a kind of... uh, implication for choosing not to choose in a way that's complicated it suggests if people choose to delegate to their own prior choices let's say or to experts who know their taste there's a kind of problem with that and so this is a point for mill about uh about mill actually made the point at one point about exposure to ideas that are different from one's own what <laughs> sorts of progress that is so that, that's a point for mill against choosing not to choose Uh, Then there's the point about choice architects, whether they work for governments or not. And here, especially if they work for governments, I think accountability is is central, nothing hidden. And a little framework that has, uh, no one's going to march under the banner, but it has uh, two concepts, cost of decisions and cost of errors. So if you have an area where uh it's really costly to make a decision and you probably get it wrong Uh, then the default rule is a good idea you have an area where it's not that costly to make a decision it's actually kind of fun uh, because you learn and you enjoy it and if you don't make the decision for yourself it's going to be gotten wrong then you probably ought to uh, make the decision actively can think of the first as for retirement plans for most of us at least High cost of decisions, if we had to do it ourselves, high cost of errors for figuring out who you're going to marry. Probably you've got to make that decision actively. It's <laughs> usually fun. And if it's not, then you're probably not it's the <laughs> right thing. Uh, and, uh, and you're probably going to do it, if not perfectly, better than some third party.
1: Right. Um, so, now this is the real last question then. Uh, you've been very generous with your time. So, um, uh, can you tell us what you have in the in the pipeline? I, I, I know that you have multiple projects running uh, uh, constantly. So, um, uh, after choosing not to choose, uh, what's the next project?
0: Well, I'm finishing right now. Uh, it should be out in the fall. It's just about done. A book called Constitutional Personae. And it oh. says that when we think about... Uh, our, our founding system uh, and people who are involved in its interpretation. We have heroes, we have soldiers, uh, we have minimalists, and we have mutes. So it's about, there are four persona, just four, and heroes are the big swashbucklers who want uh, social reform, either in liberal or conservative ways. The soldiers just want to do what the people say, uh, the minimalists are kind of like Edmund Burke; they want to go small steps, and the mutes think we should just shut up.
1: <laughs>
0: and uh, those are that's that's the project I'm I'm just about done. With.
1: Well, that sounds very exciting. I look I look forward uh, uh, to reading that when it's when it's out. Um, but uh, for now, uh, Cassoncine, I just want to thank you for uh, for your time and for talking to us on New Books in Philosophy about your new book, Choosing Not to Choose. Understanding the Value of Choice. Oh, thanks so much. It was a great pleasure. I take care now. Yeah, you too. All best. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Cass Sunstein Harvard University. We were talking about his new book, Choosing Not to Choose, Understanding the Value of Choice, newly published by Oxford University Press. I'm Robert Talish, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thanks for listening.